Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. My guest today, Carter Wilson, is the USA Today and number one Denver Post best-selling author. He explores the depths of psychological tension and paranoia in his dark domestic thrillers. Born in New Mexico in 1970, Carter grew up primarily in Los Angeles before attending Cornell University in New York. Carter is a two-time winner of both the Colorado Book Award and International Book Award, and his novels have received critical acclaim, including multiple starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and also the Library Journal. He lives with his two children in a spooky Victorian house in Erie, Colorado. Carter, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Oh, I appreciate you having me on, Stephen. I love how you live in Erie, Colorado, in an, a spooky house. Tell me, tell me what's that? It, it, your kids, I suppose, do they see ghosts or something, or what's the story with that? No, I'm still, I'm still working on that. Um, <laughs> the, the, the neighborhood is a newer neighborhood, but the, the architecture has to reflect um, uh, turn of 20th century Colorado architecture. So when I designed my house. I, I really wanted to to make it look like the Adams family house as much as I could. Oh my goodness, that's great! The turret and you know the the spiked cresting and gargoyles out front and bats and yeah, it's it's just kind of my thing. So that's um, great. Yeah, I bet that's, your kids that's the atmosphere though, my kids yeah. going to be in. Yeah. <laughs> I um, I am impressed that you designed your own house. For me, the extent of my design knowledge goes to our treehouse in the back, but I can't imagine an entire house. Well, when I say design, I had general ideas, so I, I, I certainly didn't uh, break out the CAD software myself. <laughs> well, anyway, it's great to have you here, and um, I think our paths have crossed a number of times at Thriller Fest over in New York City, That's and right. I couldn't yeah. recall exactly when we first met, but I do uh, I do know that this last year we had touched base a little bit, and um, it's always good to see you there, and not only as an author, but also it's neat to see that you're on panels and sharing some insights about writing and that sort of thing, too. Yeah, it's a fun opportunity, and yeah, I've, uh, yep, I've definitely enjoyed uh, hanging out with you there as well. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, um, one of the things I love to do is just to kind of pick the brains of my guests on sort of their approach to story and to storytelling. And I recently had the chance to read a copy of your newest book, Mr. Tender's Girl, and was really impressed with your economy of language. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I felt like every word in the book mattered and there weren't any words that didn't. Um, does that come naturally to you, or do you have to go through a number of drafts to shave down the story and just find the nuggets to really shape the scene? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely progressed every time I write something new. I've kind of learned how to how to capture that economy because, I mean, to me, you know, it's all about the pacing. Uh, that's so important to me. And um, there's so many precious things that you want to say, and then you start to realize, like, okay, this is just, I, I'm just trying to, um, I'm just trying to sound good, and yeah. <laughs> it's that whole kill your darlings mentality. In fact, um, I actually have kill your darlings uh, tattooed on my right arm. Um, oh my goodness! <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I have a little inkwell with it says kill your darlings on it, and it's and it's completely true. You've got to just go in, and does this sentence, do these words contribute to the pace of the story, to the message of the story? Um, and then you start to realize over time, like wow, when I take those out. It, I've really, I've really increased the intensity of the scene because now you you can feel it. Um, it's more of a staccato burst rather yeah. than you, uh, you. So that's not to say you can't have long descriptions and and um, and whatnot. But I, my style is much more fragmented, and I think that helps capture the point of view of somebody who's maybe not totally stable or uncertain of of what's happening around them. Yeah, I think that's a good, you know, a good point. It does sort of reflect the personality of the characters. In in a recent novel of mine, I had a character who, well, actually, one that I just finished up, will be out next um, later, actually later this year. But anyway, um, there's a character who is losing it mentally. He's mm-hmm. slowly slipping away, and it's very disjointed sometimes in his point of view. 
And I think it's the only honest way to render what's actually going on in this guy's head. And so uh, I, I, I agree. I think that, you know, the way that the style of your writing, um, especially in the book that I just read here, really does reflect that character's um, inner world. Um, right, and I tend to case. write from just one, sometimes two points of view, and um, usually they are kind of that first person, often present tense, and so I think that lends itself more to that that kind of fragmented style. And, you know, some people aren't crazy. Some people, I, I get the feedback like, oh, it took me a little while to get into the way that you write because there are a lot of, you know, sentence fragments. Um, but but I think after a while, you it, it gets you inside their head. Oh, I really like I, I like the sentence fragments. You know, people are sometimes taught that a, a sentence needs to have you know um, a verb and a noun. And you know, if you think about it, especially even in dialogue, so much, so many sentences don't have that. Like, like if you have two people at a table and one of them says, um, "Pass the salt," and the other one says, "This," and he's like, "Now," and you can have an entire conversation without anybody really going on. And right. saying, you know, a complete sentence again. Um, right. And it's so natural. It, it like, sounds natural. Yeah, with pepper. And he's like, <laughs> right. of course. You know what I mean? And, and the whole right. thing can be, um, yeah, to, to, otherwise it would be like, would you please pass the salt? Is this the salt you're asking me about? Yes. Pass it over. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. what? Yeah, it you want it to totally like sound correct, right? You, you want to read it and feel like, okay, this is a realistic sounding conversation because it, yeah. it's so obvious when it's when it's stiff. And it doesn't take much to make it that way. And that yeah. does take just kind of practice and rewrites and reading it out loud to yourself. Um, a, lo- a lot of times that will, will help as well. Yeah, I do the same thing sometimes. And so I, my view is that, you know, a full, a complete sentence is one that contains a complete package of meaning within that context. And so oftentimes the context allows you to leave out something, a verb or a noun, but still convey the full passage of meaning. And I feel like you do a good job with that. Whenever you have a fragment, I never lost my place with the story. Instead, it felt like, okay, that's the actually appropriate way of rendering this and um, completely understand it with the context. Yeah, so for me, it's a more fun way to write as well because it's because you do kind of get lost inside inside a character a bit easier when you're when you're not worried so much about you know a full traditional complete sentence with, with you know with everything you write. Now, Carter, one of the things that um, you um, you do well in your book is this point of view thing that you mentioned earlier, and for those of you who are listening and you're wondering what we're talking about, if I say, I went to the store, that's first-person point of view. Or if I, if I say, I go to the store and I open the door, that's first-person and it's present tense. And uh, very often people will write in third-person, sort of like, he went to the store, he opened the door, walked inside, something like that. But yours tends to be, in at least in this book, it was all, I think, in one person one person's point of view. Um, And a lot of suspense writers use multiple points of view in order to create more suspense. Um, So, for instance, you might have one point of view character who sneaks into the parking garage and Jimmy's opened the door of a car and slips inside. And then you flip to another point of view of the woman coming down the elevator and she pulls out her keys and, and unlocks her car. Then you flip back to the guy in the car and you see him pull out a knife you flip right. to her point of view, and she walks up to the car to open the door, and readers are like, no, 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 don't open the door. There's a guy waiting in there. <laughs> and by flipping back and forth, they can show danger that a character in the story isn't aware of. Um, but when you're only in that one person's point of view, you don't have that, um, I guess, advantage to be able to to do that. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is really how do you, and I felt like your book had great suspense and tension in it, how do you build up that suspense and tension without using that tool that so many people use where it flips back and forth to provide information the reader might not, or the character isn't aware of, but the reader is? Yeah, that's a great question. I I, I think when you stick in that that one point of view, there's there's kind of this intense vulnerability about it because... You don't know what's going to happen next, and and I don't outline my book, so 
I'm just putting myself in the head of this person. And then all of a sudden I'll think of something that will happen to them. And it's, it's such a shock to me that, that it happens to them that I can only assume that it's going to be shocking to the reader. And there's that extra punch. Yeah, you might not see it coming. Like that's the very Hitchcockian kind of approach is to show the ticking bomb under the table. Um, so the viewer knows about it. But just having that happen out of out of nowhere, I think, um, really makes up for all that suspense at once. Yeah. Um, and and it really takes you in different directions that you're not expecting. So, you know, if I can surprise myself when I'm writing, that's my biggest goal. Is like I don't I don't really want to know what's what's going to happen until I get to that point because I think that's going to be much more enjoyable for the reader, and it's certainly much more enjoyable for me to write that way. I think if I were to outline every, everything, I, I think the the suspense would probably be be lessened you know i have a lot of different people on the show some outline some write more organically as you do and as i do as well i don't don't outline and for many of the same reasons when you were speaking here just a second ago i was thinking i could have almost been saying the same words that (laughs) i find that if i'm not surprised i don't know that readers will be and the books always go in a different direction by writing organically than than i would have anticipated um and and I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. You know, some people write incredibly detailed outlines. I know Jeffrey Deaver was on the show, and he'll sometimes write 200-page, single-spaced outlines of his books. Jeez. And my outline of a book is maybe a paragraph where I'm like, here's right. what I'm thinking right. of. And that's right. about right. it. So it's incredibly different, you know, approaches to writing. But but um, it's neat to see, you know, how how people with different approaches – you know, still find success in telling great stories. Yeah, I like to, you know, the way I really approach it is I, I never really think of an idea for a book. I never think of like, well, this is kind of the arc of the book and this is how I want it to end. To me, it's always about this is kind of the opening scene. I would yeah. love to, I'd love to see this scene. This scene excites me and I don't know what it means. I don't know who these people are or where it's going. And then it's, the book is kind of trying to answer the question of that scene. It was a little bit different with Mr. Tinder's Girl, where I did have more of an inception point of, of what I wanted to see in terms of a character. Um, but, but typically speaking, even in, in one of the opening scenes in Mr. Tinder's Girl, um, you know, I always throw this like, well, what if this just happened? And what does that mean? And just kind of build on it from there because that's that's exciting to me. I usually spend a hundred or so pages just throwing stuff at a character to see, you know, see what they can take, and then the next three hundred pages trying to figure out how they're going to get out of whatever situation that they're in. Now, do you find that your characters tend to have take on a life of their own uh, as you write, where you don't always anticipate what they're going to say or do, and suddenly they do? And you're like, man, I had no idea you were going to do that. Do you ever find that? Uh, yeah, sometimes. I, for me, it's more a situation rather than a character. Um, okay, yeah. On a life of its own. I mean, I remember, you know, I was writing a book once where, you know, I was introducing the hero and he was stuck in traffic on the Washington Beltway. And I I wanted to convey that he's kind of a good guy, so he gets out of the car to help a stranded motorist. And then it just hit me. I'm like, this guy has to get hit by a car. He's just standing in the middle of the <laughs> And it was just so obvious that that had to happen. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do after he gets hit by a car, but it just has to happen. So I'll have things like that where I just it just seems so obvious that that's that I need to do that with a character, um, you know. And, but they do, and I'm sure you feel the same way. They do evolve, right? As you write, they do become there. There's certain aspects of them that are maybe more mature than you would give them credit for, and other aspects that they're more lacking in that certainly yeah. make it more engaging as you go along. Yeah, for sure. And I love to see characters just. I I'm very I'm a very big fan of characters failing because I think that's very mm. real. I think you know I think I write from kind of ordinary perspectives and so if there's an ordinary person in an extraordinary situation my expectation is when they get hardcore things thrown at them they're going to struggle and suffer and fail and not necessarily break completely um but I'm a big fan of of having them go through that struggle because it's it's real to me and then figuring out okay well how can I overcome that without being a superhero 
Um, to me, that's that's a very engaging aspect of character development. Yeah, I think it's interesting. There's sort of this paradox in writing where when we come to a story, um, we want to see the character go through struggles that we would never want the people we care about in real life to go through. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, it's like the worse things get for the character, the more we're drawn into the story. But we would never want these things to happen to the people that we really care about in real life. So, And you want them to succeed, yeah. but you don't want it to be unrealistic. So there's yeah. a, that's a really hard balance to do. It's like, okay, you know, if you get shot – it's a big deal. It's not yeah. just it's a flesh wound. It's it's something you have to really think about as you carry this person forward in your story, the effect of something like that, and and that's that's that weighs heavily on me because I I like I like my stories to be unpredictable, but not necessarily so wildly unrealistic that you know people just lose interest in them. Yeah, I feel like in the first. I think the first novel that I wrote, one of my characters was um, helping someone who died, and he got blood all on his shirt and so on like that. And then I just kind of had him go home or whatever, and I had a beta reader, you know, say, he's got blood all over him. Does he take a shower? Does he change clothes? Does he throw out these clothes? Does he buy a new set of clothes on the way home? What's going on? And I was like... He brings up a good point. Like, right, literally, you're right. covered with blood. You're going to take care of it somehow. You're not just going to go on with life. And it was one of those things where I didn't really think about it so much. And so since then, I've really tried to ask those questions of what would this character naturally do? And well, what would I do? Then, right. Yeah, let them do it, you know. Yeah, the other one yeah. that you always have to try to answer is like, okay, well, why wouldn't they just call the cops at this point? Yeah. Because I, n- I never want to have the cops involved. I, I like people not having help. <laughs> and so I always have to think of a plausible, why wouldn't they call? Well, what, what are the ramifications if they called the cops? Um, so that, that's, that's always a struggle as well. I know it's getting harder and harder because, in, in other words, to make it believable that people wouldn't just call the cops, especially with more accessibility with cell phones and and you know 911 things and different security processes at home where you can just easily you know even call through your um your home or whatever your home security system so you're right. right i mean how do you do that in a believable way where it's like all right there's um this person is in this situation and it doesn't call the police and readers are like oh of course not Right. <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, in the case of Mr. Tinder's girl, I had it be kind of, you know, well, if she called the police there, she's vulnerable to things being found out about her um, that she's not willing to, to, to risk. So, And you have to make the unknown, the, the, the threat of what's happening to that character, still kind of vague enough where, like, well, maybe it'll be okay if I don't call the police. Maybe I, I, That's always the threat of, like, maybe I can still handle this on my own. Right. Rather than knowing how overwhelming it is, you just kind of layer a little bit until until at some point it's just too late, um, and and that's that takes several drafts to kind of get that balance right. I feel. Yeah, no kidding. Now, some of your scenes from the book um, have sort of a ripped from the headlines feel to it. Tell us a little bit about the process of mining reality for ideas for your fiction. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you about the inception of Mr. Tinder's Girl, and it's it's um, it's inspired by the Slender Man stabbing, um, which happened in 2014, and that was a case in um, Wisconsin where a girl, I think she was 12, I think was she stabbed, was 12, yeah, yeah, was stabbed by two classmates, um, and and these classmates were um, motivated by this fictional graphic novel character Slender Man. So I'm reading this article, you know, when it came out, and I'm you know, immediately drawn to this headline. And the first couple paragraphs in, I read, you know, those points, and it just, I mean, it chills me to my core. It's just so creepy. And then I realize, then I get to the paragraph that the victim survived um, miraculously, and then I just completely stopped reading. I didn't want to know anything more about this case. I I knew this was exactly what I was going to write about because I was fascinated with what does that girl, that victim look like as an adult? What, what scars, you know, physically and mentally does she carry with her? 
What does her average day look like? Um, and what are the ramifications of that? Um, so to this day, I haven't read, you know, and Slender Man became an HBO series, um, and it's had tons of national headlines, but I haven't read anything else to stand because I, I just don't want to know. I, I wanted my yeah. own universe. Um, so, you know, that was the extent that it was kind of ripped from the headlines. Um, yeah, but everything after that was just my own creation. I love that you stopped researching at that point where you had this nugget of an idea and you asked that question, what, you know, what would it be like or what would it look like if she was, you know, 20 years down the line or something? And, um, and that you, you know, you held back from reading more and, and following it. I, uh, it was in the headlines just recently again. With, yeah, um, people will send me, you know, yeah. yeah, there was a, a I think a sentencing or something because people will send me articles. And I mean, <laughs> part part of it certainly when I was writing, but part of it was I certainly didn't want to be influenced by it. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be trying to tell that story. I wanted to be yeah. completely unique. And part of it was like you know I, I want to be sensitive also. Like I'm I'm not trying to glorify or, or take advantage of this horrible incident that happened to this yeah. girl. Um, I'm trying to make it its own story. Um, so I think there's a little bit of me that that just doesn't. Doesn't want to gawk, <laughs> so um, yeah. No, that's but, but that's it's funny because people yeah. people are very fascinated by by the Slenderman case, and it's gotten a lot of attention. I mean, just because it's so there's there's something about, I mean, obviously about you know, girls stabbing. I mean, it's just so horrifying and and just weird and being motivated by a graphic novel character. Like, what is that all about? Um, that's just yeah, it's riveting. That curiosity, I think, is so core to being being a great storyteller and asking that question, what if this, or, you know, what would it look like here, and if things were different and changed. And I mean, a lot of the people that I've had on this show have that, that I don't even know, I, I guess it's a natural spark of curiosity to just want to take something that they hear about or that they think about and extend it out toward, you know, its logical end. And I think that's one of the keys of being a great storyteller, being a great writer, is is just whether you naturally do that or if you facilitate that ability, but to 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 take things to their end uh, by asking what if and just letting it yeah. play out. That's that's exactly. I mean, again, you're taking the words out of my mouth. I've written actually blogs called What If because that's it. Um, a great example. So my third book, The Comfort of Black, I opened the book and, you know, almost because it was interesting to me, I just wanted to write a sex scene. So I'm like, I'm just going to write a sex scene. But I want it to be meaningful. I want it to be, you know, a married couple. Maybe they're trying to have a kid, but there's problems in the marriage. So I'm just writing this scene. He falls asleep and she's kind of staying up in bed thinking about, you know, what it would be like to be pregnant. And then to me, that's the fun part of like, okay, now what if something happens? And in my mind, I'm like, what if he starts talking in his sleep? And what if he says <laughs> something so horrible that it completely shakes the foundation of everything she knows just from a few sentences in his sleep? What would that look like? I love it. That, yeah, so you do that and you're like, okay, I have no idea what that means, but that's cool, right? Now I get a, now I now I've got a whole book to figure out why he said that and what's the reality behind all of this and what would she do at that point? Um, I love thinking of stuff like that because it's just it's it's exciting. I think you're right. That is that is the nugget that that I think writers have to to allow them to to make unique stories and not just you know cookie cutter templates. Now, in this book, the protagonist's father, when she was a child, told her bedtime stories and created this entire kingdom for her and for her brother. And uh, I couldn't help but wonder, does that come from maybe your own life, either listening to, telling, uh, listening to stories or maybe telling them to your, to your own children? Yeah, that's, that's actually completely lifted from my own life. So when my kids were younger, um, I had um, every night I would tell them a story, and it was all based on this world um, I had created. And it was about my kids, but they were transplanted to this, to this world, and they had to figure out how to get home. And it's, you know, a, a wondrous world, but it was also pretty scary. It had some pretty intense places. 
And every night I just made up what happened next. Um, and that's where the idea of Chancellor's Kingdom came from. Um, and I actually had um, a DC artist, DC um, um, comics artist, draw up graphic panels based on some of some of those stories of Chancellor Kingdom for part of this kind of website that I'm created part of that's part of part of the book. Oh, how cool. That's neat. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, we're we're kindred brothers I think cuz I did the same when my kids were growing up. I would Oh, okay. I did I a mean, continuing so much more story to that, make it up on the spot, right? Yeah, we yeah, we'd make it up on the spot and and it continued for about 10 years, about 300 nights a year. So, oh, my goodness. And, oh, you were more committed than I was. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. But when I was on the road, I would take the the phone and call home and tell them a bedtime story. And and um, so it just kind of built and grew and grew. But none of those stories were ever written down. Like, I've never yeah, mined that material for my books. But it's sort of this, you know, special world that my kids were able to grow up in. And I think that's a great gift that you gave to your to your kids um, that they grew up in this storied world. Um, yeah, and it's and it would be. I mean, I wish I had done it longer, but it was, it's funny because some of the nights you just be like, I'm just so tired, and I mean, it's it's a lot of work to like what happens next and keep it suspenseful. And as they, they get older, you know, they they're they're harder to please, and um, <laughs> you know, some nights it's it's just exhausting, and and other nights it just would take off, and you're like, this is pretty cool. So let's say that um, a dad is listening or a mom is listening, and they want to make up a story on the spot for their kids. What do you have any insights on how how we could do that, even if we're not, you know, novelists or professional writers or something like that? Well, I, I think for a kid, it's got to be about the kid, right? So yeah. if you if you import your child into the story. It's automatically interesting to them, um, so that's that's the key. Is the, you know, your kid is named Joe. Where's Joe? Where you put Joe somewhere that's that they've got to get out of, or in some magical world. Yeah, that's all it really takes. Yeah, what well, we would always start. I would always start by saying, as you remember, and I would review what happened the night before, and that would give me a little bit of time to try and make something up for tonight. Like it would be like a two minute. Thing. As you remember, and as I'm thinking, as I'm telling them what happened the night before, it'd be like, all right, where is this going to lead? Now it would always end at a cliffhanger and be like, I'll tell you more tomorrow. Right, and, right. And then you and, forget where you left it. And you're like, where did we leave Yeah, off? yeah. And, but and they, they would, would always remember. remember. You know? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And so, but I would always try and, you know, kind of what you said, put them in this magical world, have stuff happen to them, you know, problems, difficulties, obstacles that they have to choose to overcome, usually using some sort of special skill or gift or, or you know, or magic wand or something that they had. And so I would give, I would give to these different creatures that were in this world their own special personality or gift, and then they would... Right. They would come out with it, but so once in a while, I would just get sick of it, and I would just say, you know, I'd get to the end, and I'd say the end, and my <laughs> kids would be like, no, it's not. I say, no, it is. That's the end. It's done. And they're like, no, it's not done. I'm like, yeah, no. that's the end. They're like, it's not the end. And then, and then I would say, okay, I'll tell you more tomorrow, and they would say, no, tell us more tonight. The same. They'd always wow. do that. So, wow. But the fun. That's I mean, cool. it was. It's it's a neat thing to do uh, and a great you know way to bond with your kids is to to do these stories and most people feel intimidated by the idea oh, I can't make up a story on the spot well just stick your kid in this magical world have something you know interesting happen to them and and uh, have them try to find a way out of it and right and I think you know people sometimes think creativity is is intimidating and they're like well I have to brainstorm. And I always tell people the secret to creativity is not brainstorming. That's the second step. The first step is to limit yourself. And uh, sometimes in my seminars, I'll give people a chance. I'll say, oh, go, ahead, go ahead and write a story. And, you know, I'll wait three or four minutes and say, how many of you have a story? And, you know, half the people are, have nothing, right? And then I'll say, all right, in the next four minutes, I want you to write a story about a pickle that doesn't want to get eaten. And <laughs> so I say, go. Well, in four minutes, everybody's got a pickle story, right? Some of them are dramatic and, and tragic. The pickle gets eaten. Some of them are humorous, and he's falling down and being run around or whatever. But everybody has this story. And I say, well, what's the difference between the first time and the second time? Did you have that p 
pickle story in you at the start. Well, of course they did. But they just didn't have a limit enough. So by giving them a character and a struggle and a time limit, they were able to come up with the story everybody was. Right, right. Otherwise, so, it just didn't sell Yeah, overwhelmed. so it's like setting these limits sets people free to be creative. Um, and so, you know, it's so intimidating to say, okay, make up a story on the spot. Well, I could never do that. Okay, well, make up a story in which your child is in a fantasy world and has to battle an evil wizard and just make it three minutes long. And suddenly people are coming up with these amazing stories. Right. Absolutely. No, that's that's a good way of putting it. I never really thought about it that way before about setting a limit, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that's when you sit down to write a book, after you've done it enough, you start to realize, well, I know what my limits are. My limits are probably going to be the genre in which I'm already succeeding. You know, yeah. I, I know the limits of what my, my readers will want to see and what's believable. And you, you do start setting those limits. I'm like, yeah, maybe I'd love to write a YA novel, but that's really beyond the limit of what <laughs> is viable for me at the moment. Yeah, you're right. yeah it, it is an interesting way to look at creativity and it's almost the opposite of what most people kind of think of. And, um, the other thing about creativity that I like to encourage people to do is to remember that creativity isn't seeing what no one else would see, but it's basically it's seeing what anyone else would see if only they were looking at it from that perspective. So um, I know one time I was in Denver at this hotel, uh, and I was speaking at an event, and, and um, anyway, I was walking down the hall, and the exit sign for the hotel was not above a door, uh, to the stairwell, but next to the floor. It was, so it was about six inches off the ground, the exit sign was. I thought, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody stick an exit sign down there? I was like, the only reason you would need an uh, exit sign down there is if you were crawling along the floor. Oh, smoke. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yep. smoke. So if your hotel is filled with smoke, people are going to be crawling to get out. Well, is an exit sign above the door going to do them any good? Absolutely not. They're not going right. to see it. But if it's down there, they'll know which door of all the doors in the hotel to take down the stairwell. Well, I thought that makes so much sense. Why doesn't everybody do that? Well, I think it's because most people just don't look at it from that perspective. But whoever was designing that hotel probably said, fire, I've got to get out. What am I going to do? I'm going to crawl up. Oh, well, I need an exit sign down here for me to see how to get out. And then... Right then they put it there. So it's putting yourself in that situation. And so sometimes when I'm writing, I'll, you know, I'll walk around, I'll, you know, the living room, I'll not pretend that someone's throwing a punch at me or, you know, whatever, and just try to physicalize it and get into the scene. And then suddenly I start to notice things that I hadn't noticed before. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And just even getting into uh, a character's head to be able to recognize those things, um, it's yeah, it takes practice. It's not, you know, it's so hard to write a scene where it just doesn't sound, you know, cliched or normal. Um, it, and it's just amazing to me the amount of, of practice it takes to to really get that feel for like, okay, this feels different, different but believable. The last thing I want. Yeah, you know, I'd I'd much rather have a reader call my book unbelie you know unrealistic than um, cliched. I, I'd rather have them read something like you know I've never really quite read something like that before. That to me is a successful story. So, I was looking through just some of my notes that I took on your story, and one thing jumped out on page two ten, um, and it was not a typo. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's it's all good. It was um, you were referring to. Let, let's see. I'll just read a paragraph or so. I turn back to Sylvia and we look, and we lock into each other. She says nothing. Just as I'm about to turn and leave, she holds the picture against her chest and smiles. Here's what I like. It says it's not that plastic brainwashed smile of her sister. No, this is the smile as it was first ever invented by humans. Not one to convey joy or happiness but simply to show the enemy your fangs. I was like, that was really interesting. It was like an interesting insight into human nature um, uh, and smiles and just this idea of you stepping back and saying, what were the first smiles there to do 
what to show joy or maybe to show threat and uh, I think that writers in a sense we need to be poets with language we need to be philosophers to ask big questions and psychologists to understand human nature and we have to do it all in a way that's entertaining to readers and carrying um, it forward a story right? yeah yeah to forge a story out of all of that. And um, I was wondering if you had a background in psychology or human nature or anything like that, because I felt like uh, there were a new, numerous places in the in the story where it, it, it was really insightful. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I don't, actually. It's funny. I, you know, at Cornell, I went to um, hospitality school, um, and so I've worked in, you know, the, the hospitality industry and different kind of consulting arenas for, for a number of years and was never even that much of a reader. And um, it was in my early 30s that literally on a day I started to write, and it was actually an exercise to ward off boredom during a, a continuing education class for, for a long time. <laughs> I started to write this story, and that turned into a 400-page manuscript. But I had never, I'd never written anything before. Um, so, I mean, for example, that that quote about the fangs, I didn't research that. That somehow was a nugget that had that just came from me, and and I yeah. I think it's true. I don't know if it's true. I kind of remember hearing that once, and um, but there is something very rewarding about when you when you just have that sense of like, okay, this is the right way to say this. Um, and again, it, go, it kind of goes back to learning the, the economy of words. There's something so satisfied about how can I turn this sentence into three words that is much more effective. Um, I love those ch- challenges. So that's that's one of the, the biggest joys of writing is, is having those moments. Now, I know that you're gearing up to do promotion and um different interviews and maybe a book tour for this current book but i also know that when we're writers we never have just one thing on our mind or on our plate at, at any specific time so even as you're promoting you know this current book um is there something else is there another book rotating through your mind or a new project that you're playing with yeah totally there's i mean you're <laughs> and you're completely right it's it's a very um it's a very full time for me right now, and I'm very fortunate and blessed to you know have as much going on as I have right now. Um, but it is it can be a little overwhelming when you're gearing up for a book launch, and then I'm about sixty thousand words into something new, um, which you know is something I've been struggling with because it's taken off in so many different directions, and it all has to do about memory and lost memory and the commonalities of lost memory between kind of strangers. Um, and now I'm at the point where I'm having to really step back and say, what is this story about and how do I finish it? And it's exciting to me, but it's it's a struggle too because, you know, I don't outline. And so if the, these are the times when it becomes difficult if you're, if you don't outline is to, You've written yourself to a point of like, okay, how do I how do I answer these questions now? So, I'm trying to wrap that up in the next month or so, um, but it's it, it's difficult. Yeah, no kidding. I always tell people that I think one of the places where the best ideas rest and wait for us is in the corners. Like people say, well, they'll often, especially to organic writers like us, they'll often um, warn us, "Be careful, or you'll write yourself into a corner." And yeah. You know, in my in my life, all the best ideas I've I've come up with, the best twists, best character quirks, and so on, have come when I'm like, I really literally don't know what to do. There's this place in the story where I don't know what this character is going to do, and then the more I analyze it and look at the context and ask those questions about believability and um, you know twists and escalation of tension and. and uh, as I, the more that I really focus on that scene, looking at it from the context of what was just written, eventually I come up with something. I'm like, man, I never would have come up with that before. Totally. And you but, have to be completely willing to make major sacrifices. At least I do. I mean, I this book that I'm working on right now, I just realized this, you know, it's a secondary character, but it's a fairly significant secondary character. I'm like, this character is completely wrong. And so I just went back, and you know, he's not this person. He's that person, and his job is totally different. And now I'm writing, I'm like, oh, yeah, this just feels so much creepier and so much more, you know, 
a part of this story. And it's a lot of work, but it, but you have to be willing to, you, you have to keep your mind open enough to accept that what you've already written m- might have to significantly change to get to mm. the place that that corner just unveiled for you. That's a hard, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I mean, it is. It, you know, we do this for a living and it's still hard. Imagine someone says, I'm just going to write a book and they start writing a book. It's so easy to sort of say, I need to stick to what I wrote and it, it takes courage and a little bit of insanity to say, guess what, I've got to discard the last 50, 100 pages or, or even more and, you know, re- redo this thing. I mean, but yep, it, totally. it's necessary. It is. And and, and, it's, it's, and it just takes experience, but the end result is so much more satisfying because you know when you've when – because you're, I, you know, the first person who I show, my, my girlfriend edits my work, so she'll see it first. But then it goes to my agent. And I'll know if it's if it's not a story that's going to be good enough, you know. And I don't want that. So yeah. you're, you're kind of writing. I'm kind of writing for her. That's my first <laughs> audience, you know. And then and because if she's excited about it, then your your editor will be excited about it, et cetera, et cetera. So, but yeah, that takes that takes a lot of manuscripts to get to knowing, having a feel for all of that. Now, um, when it, when I talk to some authors, they say that writing a villain is sometimes um, comes easier than writing the hero. Mm-hmm. That um, that the the villains are often very intriguing and interesting, and the challenge is not so much coming up with the villain, but the uh, the protagonist. When when you approach yours, how do you step into the mind of your villain or? When you when you do, do you find that same thing to be true, or is it is it different for you in your case? Yeah, I, it is true. I think for me though, I'm very intrigued by by how we define what a villain is, right? Because I don't, I think it's very boring to have you know, heroes that are heroic and villains who are evil. Um, I like everybody to be full of gray and everyone to have kind of issues. And, and there's nothing more interesting to me than a villain, a traditional villain who is really truly believes what he or she is doing is is right and is good and is not villainous at all. Um, so I try to think of it in a sense of like, this is a human. This is just a person who has wants and needs that are unconventional. <laughs> and... But in their mind, they're not wrong. In fact, usually the villain is the most righteous-minded of everybody um, mm. because they're, they so believe in what they're doing is, is necessary and right and, or need-fulfilling. Um, so to approach it from that angle is much more interesting for me. Um, and usually I'll link it to something in their past um, or there's, yeah, I, I don't like it to be random. I like there to be, there's, there's a reason this person behaves this way and this is why they need these needs fulfilled. So if I can make the villain human, then it's easier to write that person. And a lot of times it's, it is more intriguing because you're like, wow, this is creepy, but I'm kind of seeing where this person is going. Um, and the same thing with the heroes, right? You don't want a hero who's just, a perfect human being by any means, because the readers will reject that so quickly. You want you want flaws in their past. You want some of the mistakes that they made coming back to haunt them, um, or even you know mis- you know just have everyone be human. I mean that that's that's kind of the main the main key for me. Yeah, I think of I think of it as a, the idea of moving into moral complexity, not not necessarily moral ambiguity. In other words, moral ambiguity would say maybe there is no right and wrong or it's impossible to know what's right and wrong. Moral complexity would be to say there is right, there is wrong, and all of us are drawn in different directions at different times and for different reasons. And I think that's more interesting um, than moral ambiguity where it's kind of like, well, there is no right or wrong and people do their own thing, chart their own course. And I think for the most part that doesn't ring true to us because we're like, no, actually, I do know that there is right and that there is evil. And I've been tempted to do these certain things. And I know what it would be like to, you know, to be drawn closer to the line. And to me, right. that's what's interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, it's 
you know, I never, and I always like, I like the idea of kind of the antagonist being unexpected. Um, you know, yeah. I, one of my books was the, the, the antagonist was, um, a female serial killer and she was sexually motivated. That was her. And that's very, I mean, that's like as about un, as uncommon as it gets. Yeah. To me, that was interesting. Well, what does that look like? Why is she like that? And what is her MO? Um, when it becomes more of a surprise like that, I think it, it's 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 much more intriguing to follow that character along, and also making that believable because it is so unusual that right. you know some people might say, oh, that would never happen. But to build up the world where they're like, you know what, I get it, that that right. could happen. Right, and even, that's fun. Right. That's and that's, that's part a, of the that's the kind of thing I would research. I'm like, has this happened ever before? Yeah, it's yeah. happened a couple times. Um, I mean, if you look at Elizabeth Bathany, who's you know is credited with you know six hundred something kills. Okay, that was a woman who just was a predator back in I forget what century that was. Um, it's it's happened. There's there is a basis for this. Um, okay, so therefore, if I take that even with just a few instances, I can make it believable. I think um, believability is so important. Because whenever readers get to a certain place and they're like, yeah, I don't buy it, then they're out of the story. And there are other things where they might they might not like it, uh, a certain aspect of the story, or they might get a little bit bored or, I don't know, whatever problem they might have with it. But as soon as it's unbelievable, it, it's you're, you're sunk. It's like the one thing that trumps everything else as far as it trumping is. character, trumping plot. Is this idea of believability because that moment that that comes and readers say, I don't buy it, they're just not there anymore. And that moment is different for everybody, right? And yeah. you can buy you can buy credulity with your writing. Like you can allow people to stretch it if, if, you, if you captivate them enough. Um, because for sure I write things that, okay, you've, you've killed a person in your living room and you've got to get rid of the body. That's a humongous task, and you're just a normal person. How do you do that? Um, You can do it, but you've got to put the effort in there to make it it believable enough, even though you know it's an enormous task. So, But, yeah, you're totally right. And with with your type of writing, too, there's so much more police procedural elements that I'm always in awe and impressed by, you know, the amount of research that that goes into that type of writing. And I, I... I don't think it's a cop-out, but with mine, you know, I'm typically writing from the point of view of, you know, a person who is not necessarily an extraordinary person, so their knowledge is limited. So if, if, if my character walks into a room and somebody's holding a gun on her, she's not going to identify the gun because she doesn't know anything about it. <laughs> yeah, she's exactly. like, holding a gun on me. So I don't need to research the gun. All I need to know is she sees a gun. You know, with a procedural or, or or a more research-driven novel, you've got to know everything because you, your audience is going to know all of that. So it becomes much more difficult. Well, I appreciate that. You're right. It is difficult. And uh, I spend sometimes a huge amount of time just trying to track down one specific tiny little detail because I know there are going to be people out there reading it who are going to say, wait, no, he wouldn't use that type of gun. He would have right. a 9mm oval, and I'm like, right. oh, man. But there's got to be an element to you that really enjoys that, I assume, because you're doing it. And, well, and, uh, you know? I've had a couple – there are a lot of people in law enforcement and the FBI and military who read my books, and I had one um, – detective write to me one time he said i've been a detective for 17 years and when i read your books i feel like i'm at a crime scene again and to me that's that's a huge compliment like i've never been to a crime scene i i mean it's all just asking those questions we talked about earlier what if and how would i act and what's believable and um but you know when you get a comment like that to me that helps motivate me to say okay good i want to keep Making sure that this is accurate as much as possible. Yeah, that's a well. That's a that's about as high of a compliment as you can get. Well, so before we close up, I want to see if you have any last insights you can give aspiring authors or writers who might be pursuing a thriller, or suspense, sort of something in the genre you've written. 
maybe a word of advice or a word of encouragement? Yeah, I would say, you know, I've been writing for about 15 or so years now. Um, you have to be patient. It's it's a brutal industry, as you know, Stephen. <laughs> it's, it's it's hard to to make a break in it. You have to you have to be able to handle rejection, and you just have to keep going at it. It wasn't until my it was my fifth novel that finally sold in what became my first book, and so I just every year I wrote a new book and just went through rounds of rejections from all the editors. Huh. And you just have to kind of keep, and you have to learn from it. So, um, I mean, if it's really in you, it'll work. You just, you know, just don't expect it to happen immediately because it's it's not an easy thing by any means. Man, that's good. That's good reminder, and it's very true. I mean, that patience and perseverance. If you're if you're going to make it in this field, you've got to got to have them both. Yep. And a willingness yep. to revise and to change what you did. It's good. Yep. Well, I'm thrilled about your book, and I hope it does fantastic, Mr. Tender's Girl. Um, where's the best place online to either um, re- you know, order the book or maybe find out when you're going to be doing book signings? Where, where would you direct people, a Facebook page, a website? Yeah, my... my, my um my website is carterwilson.com, and it's got um, all the different places you can pre-order the book. It's coming out on February 13th, and then it has um, the, a listing of all the events I have lined up surrounding the launch. Excellent. So so everyone who's listening, you can go and order the book now, pre-order it. You'll get it right, right away when it comes out. Um, I'm glad that, uh, Carter, you're receiving acclaim for your writing, and, and I hope that, uh, hope that all goes well with it. Um, if people are interested in my books, uh, you can go to my website, stephenjames.net, or just Google my name, Stephen James, and my books will come up. For more information about our other guests and to check out our other many broadcasts, please click to thestoryblender.com. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.